0: Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Travis Edgerton, for those of you who don't know me, I'm really glad to be here together this morning, and I love the passage that God has us in this morning. First Peter has been such an awesome book for us to go through, this series about us being an exile, that we are exiles, living in a world that isn't as it should be, but we have a savior who has saved us and changed us and called us to live as exiles in this world, engaging in it, not being aloof. But engaging our hearts in it, and and this morning he has some really amazing truth to speak to us this morning. I'd invite you to open to First Peter chapter four uh, if you're going to be using the Bible in the in the information rack in front of you. It's on page 1296. Uh, if not, you can look it up in your own Bible or your digital Bible, whatever you want to do. So open up there to 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me first tell you a story though. When I was in uh, like, I think it was like my junior, senior year in high school, maybe my freshman year of college, uh, a group of friends and I went to, um, went to San Francisco for the day just hanging out. We uh, There's this place called Blondie's Pizza on Powell Street. Have any of you been there? It's like you just kind of walk up, one person or something has been there. Great. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, This is a pizza place, you know, whatever. And uh, you walk up to it, and uh, you you order your pizza there, and they just kind of hand it to you, and then you eat it on your own. Uh, We were walking up, and um, there was this guy right outside the pizza place, and he looked pretty down and out, looked like he needed some help, looked hungry. And so um, I thought, you know, man, I've never done this for anyone before, but I'm going to buy this guy a piece of pizza. I'm going to do something and I'm going to tell him that God loves him or something like that and I just got inspired in my heart. I'm going to do something good. I'm going to do something right. Something I believe God would have me do and so as I'm waiting in line for the pizza, you know, this story in my head of what's going to unfold is just growing and growing, right? Like, so I'm having these visions of like, I'm going to grab the pizza. I'm going to walk it over to him. I'm going to say, in God's name, I give you this pizza and he's going to look at me with this look of awe and he's going to say, Thank you for the pizza. Please tell me how to be saved. You know, and, and this amazing thing's going to happen, this whole thing. So I'm just having these delusions of grandeur in my head, and I buy the pizza. And they just handed it to me on this piece of wax paper, right? Nothing else, no plate, no nothing. They just, here's your pizza. And so, okay, I grab it, and I walk over to the guy, and I said, hey, man, I, I said, you know, I believe God told me to, you know, to, to buy you some pizza to help out a little bit here. And, and so I, I gave it to him. And uh, he takes it in his hand, and he did have a look of astonishment on his face. And he looked up at me, and he said, man, where's the box? (laughs) And I thought, well, man, people in San Francisco may have a different way of saying, please tell me about Jesus. Maybe that's like some kind of code word for that. And I, I said, well, I'm sorry, what? And he said, Where's the box, man? You 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 just handed me a piece of pizza in your hand. What if you have a disease? I don't want to get sick. And I was I didn't know what to say. I just said okay and I turned around. And I walked I walked away and I'm in my mind though what happened. It went downhill fast. I'm sitting here thinking that's the last time I ever helped somebody out, man. Like here he was supposed to fall on his knees and repent and ask for Jesus to be in his heart. And, and here I am walking away. Having, I didn't give him a box. I didn't know I was supposed to ask for a box to give away a piece of pizza. And my mind was saying, well, I'll never do that again. And the reaction, though, in my heart that day uncovered something really disturbing there in my heart. It uncovered why I do what I do. You see, I had been doing good things, but maybe for the wrong reason. I had fallen under the delusion that if I do the right thing, I am entitled a right or good or blessed response. So I was doing the right things. My motive for doing good was to benefit myself. I had bought into this belief that doing those things entitled me to receive rewards and benefits. Anyone in here struggle with that same feeling? That, man, if I do the right thing, I'm entitled to a right response. But here in 1 Peter, uh, God is giving us quite a different picture, isn't he? That Jesus himself is the reward. When I follow Jesus, my reward is that I get Jesus. And that in the here and now, because this world is very, very broken, can I get an amen? Because this world is very broken, things not going as you expected can be expected. It's broken. Things are not going to go the way we want them to go. And so pursuing Jesus brings the kind of reward that can only be received by those who can value delayed gratification. Who can do what is good and what is right now and receive blessing for it then. Who can put those binoculars up to their eyes and in faith trust God for the mountain peak that they see over there, despite the valley they're going to have to walk through right here. That is what this gospel of Jesus promises us And warns us of. And so here in chapter 4, as Peter begins to bring his letter to a close, he seems to be answering this really, really important question. And the question is this. How do I actually respond to hardship I experience because I follow Jesus? Peter's trying to help the church that he wrote this to, the churches that he wrote this to, to answer the question, how do I respond when hardship comes my way because I follow Jesus? Because it will. And so today, we're going to cover verses 1 through 11, and and this section pretty much directs our outward response for when we experience hardship on Jesus' behalf, for when things come our way we didn't expect, didn't want, because we're following Jesus, how do I respond outwardly? That's what today we're going to cover. Next week, we're going to cover the second half of the chapter. And next week, Peter does this awesome thing, and he pauses to help us figure out how to respond to the pain internally. You see, your Heavenly Father doesn't just care about what you do. In fact, he cares about what you experience and what you feel and how you process this life as you follow him. He deeply cares for what's happening inside of you. So today, let's dig into 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. And see how God is directing our outward response when we experience life as it is in this broken world. Read it with me. Verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, wait a minute. What same way of thinking? When you read something like that in the Bible, don't just say, okay, yeah, and move on. He's he, he said something here that, that begs a question. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Which thinking are we talking about here? And I think he's referring to what he said back a few verses. In chapter 3, verse 18. Read that with me. Just flip back a little bit and look at verse 18 of chapter 3. Look what he says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. There's that in the flesh. See, that's what he was talking about in verse 1. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So what does this boil down to? What is Peter saying, here's how I want you to think in the same way? It boils down to this. Jesus was willing to suffer all the way to death in order to conquer sin. He was willing to go all the way to death to defeat sin. That's the kind of thinking that Peter is saying we ought to think like. That we'd be able and willing to go all the way to death to conquer sin. And we should have this same mindset. We are exiles living in an upside down, topsy-turvy world that is not going as it ought to. So what is the mindset of an exile? Write this down. The mindset of an exile is this. I would rather suffer than let sin win. It just hits me, honestly, right now, when's the last time I chose to suffer when the other option was sin? When's the last time that sin was facing me and instead of choosing sin, I chose the other way, but that other way involved pain? How often do we make that choice? I don't know. It just hit me. But our mindset ought to be that I would rather suffer for imaging Jesus than benefit from imaging the world. He goes on in, in the middle of verse one and he says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And the list could go on and on and on. Human beings are really good at inventing new ways to screw things up and to sin. You are very good at that. I am very good at that. But see what Peter's saying is that if your mindset about sin has truly changed, so will your actions. Now he's not preaching sinless perfection here. When he says, who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's not saying that you will no longer sin. If you've truly given your life to God, your sin, sinning days are done. If he was saying that, then why is he telling these people in the church, hey, stop doing all this stuff? What he's saying is that what is ceasing is your pursuit of sin. What is ceasing is that that is the point of your life and you are going after it and you are pursuing sin, but rather you're pursuing Jesus. Jesus lived his whole life against the grain, against the grain of this upside down kingdom of sin. And he lived so against the grain, so thoroughly against the grain that it caused his death, didn't it? And so if this is what my king did, If this is what my king did, I'm going to follow him into that. I want my heart to be ready to suffer if it means saying no to sin. So many of us in the church, instead of asking the question, Father, what must I do to quit this sin? We're asking each other, how much can I do and still get away with it? And every one of us is guilty of that. That is not the question we should be asking. Sin is poison, sin is prison. We should be asking how do I put it to death? that I would be so committed to obeying God that it's, if, that, it, that it's as if I've already died to that old life, that my actions are no longer stuck in that past. And so the actions of an exile, write this down. Here's the actions of an exile. Pursuing sin is my past. I will not bring that past into the present. I will not bring that past into the present. Isn't it sad to watch a person who never grew up, who's living in the past, and all they talk about is the old glory days of when they played football or when they partied with their friends, or, oh, those were the good old days. They're talking about it as if it's yesterday, but it's 20, 30 years ago. Isn't that kind of sad to watch? Someone who's living in the past because they're present and future, they have no vision for it. There's a YouTube channel I watch, and um, it's his dad and son, and they they do this stuff together, and the son is this guy in his his early 30s, and he's married and had a son, and on one of the videos, he announced that he was getting a divorce, and and my heart just thought, man, I wonder what happened. They weren't married for long, because I remember it wasn't too long ago, he said something about getting married had this little young son, and I remembered, well, what happened? Just thinking, what happened, I wonder? And then, and then when the divorce proceedings kind of ended, he shared what happened and why he, wanted, why, why he got divorced. And really what it boiled down to was, I want my old life back. I, I, I liked it when I was able to stay out with my friends as late as I wanted to, and I didn't have to come home at any certain time. I liked it when I could play video games all day. I'm not trying to be rude. I, th- these are the things he said. I liked it when um, I could just do whatever I want. Uh, I liked it the good old days were better. And so he divorced. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to ride him down. And we've all made, hor- who, have you all made a horrible mistake in your life? How many of you have regrets? Raise your hand. How many of you have, had, have regrets? If you're not raising your hands, you have a horrible memory. Man, we all have regrets. The reason I bring that up, I'm just trying to say the the sad thing is that here's this 30-year-old man, and he's making decisions for his 30-year-old self today based off of the values and behavior from his past as a 12-year-old. He's making 12-year-old decisions in the body of a 30-something-year-old. He's bringing past values past way of living into today, and now his son is saying, where's my dad? Again, not bagging on him at all, not trying to be in any way uh, judgmental, I'm just saying this is what happens, and these are the implications for when we make decisions like that, that the good old days were better when it was like this, and this, and this, and in the Wise words of the poet and writer, songwriter Billy Joel from the 1980s. The good old days weren't always good and tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. You guys, the good old days for us as Christians weren't always good. In fact, they weren't good at all when we were pursuing sin. And I think it's hilarious that I'm trying to get you to forget about the past by quoting a song from the 1980s. <laughs> Very ironic. Very ironic. If you want to pursue Jesus, the part of your past that was about pursuing sin, those days are over. If you want to pursue Jesus, you died to that. That's what the Bible says. That's what Peter says. You died to that life. When you trusted Jesus, they had a funeral for you in the kingdom of the upside down. You died to that world. You don't exist there anymore. You see, dead people don't get drunk. Dead people don't worship idols. Dead people don't live for partying. Dead people don't pursue sexual sin. In that world, you're a dead person. And you have to live the rest of this life in the flesh, in this body, as if you died to that and it no longer exists. God calls us into freedom from these old ways and it is freedom. There are consequences for following Jesus in this world. But the benefits, the freedom, outweigh them by infinity times infinity. And he's also going to be honest with us that in this world there are consequences for following him. Look at verse 4. With respect to this, they, those who aren't following Jesus, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. What, What a statement that is. Flood of sin and evil. When you don't join them, they're surprised. And they what? Malign you. That means they speak evil about you or they speak harshly towards you. This is something that we have to just come to grips with as people who are trying to follow Jesus. Christianity is a contrast community. When you follow Jesus, there's a difference. If you love Jesus and love what he loves, you don't have to try to appear to be different. You are different. You're not better, you're not superior, you don't now know everything, but you are different because you have the Holy Spirit of Jesus living in you. At least we should be different. No one ever trusted Jesus no one ever gave their loyalty to Jesus because you forsook your loyalty to Jesus. No one ever became a Christian because you decided not to act like one. No one ever repented of your sin, their sins because you joined them in theirs. There's this thing in Western Christianity that we all get suckered into, and it's this. If I can just be one Of that group, if I can just be relevant to everyone I know, if I can do things in a way that makes me seem just like them, they'll come to know Jesus. I would agree we shouldn't be like weirdos. We shouldn't go around talking in biblical language that nobody understands and saying things in a way that is off-putting to people. But if we join people in sin, we are being disloyal to our king. Who wants to follow something? Who wants to follow someone who all the people who say they follow him are disloyal to him? No one becomes a Christian. No one sees the greatness of God because you joined them in their sin. But the difference, this contrast that we live as as a community of Jesus isn't what you think it might be. It's not acting holier than thou. You know why? Because you're not holier than thou. Or thinking that you're better than anyone else because you're not. You accepting the fact that Jesus had to die for your sins means you're not better. Or taking a judgmental heart and attitude towards people around you. It's not going out into the streets and demanding your rights and telling everyone who disagrees with you that they're wrong. That is not what the difference is. Because in the same way that no one ever trusted Jesus because you joined them in sin, so especially no one ever trusted Jesus because you acted better than them. Because you acted like you have all the answers. You don't. And you're not better. You know what makes the difference? You know what the contrast is between those who follow Jesus and the world, or at least what it should be the difference is? Love. Love. Not superiority, not acting like we know everything, not going out in the street and demanding our rights. It's love. Love. The contrast isn't just in what we don't do. The contrast is in what we do, that we love. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Now, Peter, in the next couple of verses, he, he's going to bring to bear this thought that he's going to assure us that justice is still alive. And when we are wronged for following Jesus, justice is alive and well, and God's going to take care of that. But I'm going to do something a little different. I'm not going to cover those two verses right now. I'm actually going to cover them next week. Sound good? Can you agree to that? I'm going to do it either way. So nod your heads. We'll get to those two verses if you're following along and saying, he skipped those verses. I'll get to them, I promise. But we're going to do it next week. Right now, I'm going to skip down to verse 7. Because this is where Peter begins to spell out what this contrast, this love contrast looks like. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is coming. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Guys, these two verses are packed with brilliance. But I want to give you this bucket to hold it in. Here's what Peter is saying. The reaction of an exile or the response of an exile is I will respond to hardship and suffering with prayer and love. I will respond to hardship and suffering with prayer and love. The first statement in verse 7, it's shocking. Do you get what Peter said? He says, the end is coming. The end of all things is near. It should get your attention. It's almost like we could picture Peter out on the, uh, the corner of a street with the you know, sandwich boards that those guys wear. That says, the end is near. Repent. You know those guys? And they're yelling and they're screaming. And those guys are all about the public spectacle. They're all about saying, look at me. I've got the message. I've got truth. The end is near. So here's this huge thing you need to do. This public spectacle. You've got to do everything different. Peter says the end is near. But then look what he says to do. Peter's reaction to the end of all things is just as jarring, but in the opposite direction. He says the end of all things is at hand. So keep your head and pray. Keep your cool and pray. Don't freak out. Don't be anxious. We're going to pray this through. And it's so interesting how Peter says this. Our English translations, they say to be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And that's a great and right translation for sure. It says sober-minded. But Peter, in the, uh, the language he wrote this in was Greek. When he wrote that, all he said was be sober to prayer or be sober for prayer. Church, when we are not praying, we are spiritually incapacitated. We are spiritually inebriated. Have you ever seen a really drunk person, or have you ever been a really drunk person, trying to walk or do anything for that matter? You can't walk straight, you can't think straight, you can't say what you want to say, you can't speak clearly, Simple tasks are way harder than they ought to be. And in the same way that an intoxicated person cannot function physically, so an unprayerful Christian cannot function spiritually. If you are not in prayer, constantly asking God, talking to God, seeking his wisdom, seeking his choices for your life, seeking his direction, you are spiritually drunk. And you will collapse and fail on the the sobriety field test of hardship when it comes. So Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. It's urgent. Time is short. Pray. But not only does Peter tells to keep our head and pray. He says, above all, love each other. Love. I mentioned earlier that Christians ought to be a contrast community. One of the ways that Jesus' followers ought to be different is how we respond to mistreatment. You see, the values of this world tell you that when you're opposed, you got to fight back with equal and opposite force, right? This world says, did someone hit you? Hit them back harder. Did someone reject you? Reject them and all their family. Someone say something evil against you? Say something twice as bad, even if you have to make it up, about them. This world says when you are mistreated, respond back equal, equally, equally. In the same way, with force. But our prime directive as followers of Jesus are not our rights. Well, they spoke poorly about me. I have a right to defend myself. He cheated me out of money. I have a right to get back. He said something horrible about me. I have a right to set the record straight. But our prime directive is not our rights. It's our mission. Love, like Jesus loved. Peter writes, then, that love covers a multitude of sins. You know, I had always taken that verse, I've heard it a million times, I had always taken that verse to mean that if I'm living a life of love, if I'm pursuing Jesus and becoming more loving, that I'm going to be the kind of person that's willing to forgive other people when they sin against me. And that is so true, so true. But I think that's a subset of what Peter's actually saying here. I think there's a different sense in which he's saying love covers over a multitude of sins. The whole context of this passage has been, you have to, as a Jesus follower, be so willing to die to your sin and say no to your sin, your sin. You have to be so committed to Jesus that you say, that sin is the past. And now Peter's saying, love covers a multitude of their sin? No. Here's what I think he's saying. I think Peter is saying is this as you pursue Jesus and as you pursue a life of love, love is going to keep a cover a lid on your sin. Love is going to hold back and thwart and keep at bay your proclivity to hurt and damage others. Love each other. Why? Because if you're living a life of love, those decisions and values of love are going to keep you from letting the cesspool of sin spill out and damage everyone around you including when they damage you, you will forgive them. Love covers a multitude of sin because love and sin cannot exist in the same moment. They are mutually exclusive. If I'm sinning against you, that act cannot also be loving at the same time. The opposite of love is not just hate. The opposite of love is sin, selfishness, Self-serving, doing it my way. Because when I sin against you, I can't be loving you. When you sin against me, you can't at that same moment be loving me. In that moment, you're choosing sin over love. They are mutually exclusive. So opposite that, if in a moment I'm angry at you and I really, really want to say something horrible to you because you've really hurt me, but in that moment, Jesus takes over and he says, this is a person, as, as, as messed up as they are, as much as you want to just give it to him right now, as messed up as they are, they are made in my image and you ought to love them. And you say, okay, I will love them instead. In that moment, what is love doing? Love is covering and keeping a lid on the sin that would have spilled out and damaged someone else. Love covers a multitude of sin. You know, when Jesus was asked by a Pharisee, What's the greatest commandment of all scripture, all the things God has said to do and not to do, which is the greatest one? What did Jesus answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, And the second is like it. You can't really divide the two. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then what does he say? On these commandments, all of the law and prophets are hanging you want to obey the entire law, the entire commandments of God, what do you do? Love him. Love those around you. Love covers a multitude of sin. The more we are guided by love, the less our sin will be unleashed like a toxic spill to hurt the people around us. Our culture teaches us that we must react with equal and sometimes greater and opposite force. But look at how Peter defines our response to persecution in verse 9. You're persecuted. They don't understand what you're doing. They mock you for your belief in Jesus, and you are hurt because of it. So what do you do? Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Open your home. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, the way of Jesus is to respond to suffering in the opposite spirit, love. We don't respond in the same spirit equally to what's been done to us respond in the opposite spirit. You push me out of your life, I'll open my home to you. You take from me, how can I serve you? Is there anything else I can give you? You lie about me, I will speak truth to you in love. You hit me, here's the other side of my face. You reject me, I'll always be here for you if you need me. You mock me, how can I encourage you? You hate me, I will lay down my life to love you. Does anyone else in the room feel like what I just said is insane? Besides me? We all know that what I just said is true and right. But I don't know how to live this way. It's so different than everything I see. And my fear is that if I live this way, I'm just going to get pushed over and trampled on and beaten down. But I had to learn that this was possible and beautiful through one of my daughters. She came home from school one day and she had had someone, a friend, absolutely humiliate her in front of her other friends. She was so sad and so hurt. And she told me what happened, and as a dad, my anger just, you know, I mean, it was not pretty what was happening in my heart. (laughs) And I thought, I'll calm myself down, and I will just help lead her through this. And I said, okay, well, next time they do that, this is what you say. And this is what you do. And if they humiliate you in front of your friends again, you just say, I don't need to be your friend anymore. And then you walk away. And and I'm saying all these things and just saying, here's how you protect yourself. Here's what you're going to do. And she just sat and listened and let me spill my stupidity all over the place. And then at the end of that, she took a breath and she said, but if I do that, I'll hurt her. I don't want to hurt her. Isn't that beautiful? Every person in this room, your heart leapt when you heard that, didn't you? Why? Because you saw a glimpse of love. And it's beautiful. It's like we come to Jesus with all this talk of grace and he'll forgive you and he'll make you new and we believe it and we take it on and we get excited about living differently but then as life goes on, we relearn the way of the world. I've relearned the way of the world that's about revenge and retaliation and matching punch for punch. But the way of Jesus is a contrast It's different, completely other. Saying no to sin is what shows that you are different. But living a life of love is what shows that the difference is desirable. Being different because you don't do the same things, you have some rules for your life and say no to certain sins, that's great. That's what we're called to do. We ought to, we have to be different. But you being different is not rare. There's a lot of people in the world seeking to be completely different than everyone else. How many YouTube channels are are completely about, I just want to show myself to be completely unique, right? How how many social media posts are all about, here's how I'm special and different? Everyone's different. You being different because you follow Jesus isn't the, the magic. It's that the difference is, is that when you get slapped, you bless When someone at work does something wrong to you or says something wrong about you, you don't retaliate with evil words back. You love and you serve instead. That's a difference that is desirable. That's the kind of difference that someone looking on who doesn't yet know Jesus would say, why would they do that for me when I've been horrible to them? It's because you've received love and you're passing it on passing it through. And the very last sentence of this reminds us who all this is for, verse 11, middle of the sentence. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end goal of expressing your love through opening your lives to others, speaking truth and hope to them and serving them, The end goal is that they would see Jesus and surrender to God. This is why we pray. This is why we love. This is why when we see all that is happening in the world around us, when we experience the consequences of being exiles in this very broken and upside-down kingdom, this is why we don't panic. I think it's so easy for us to look at this world and see all that's going on, all the plans that people devise and the actions they take and feel like we need to have an equal and opposite reaction. We feel in our hearts like we're saying, we've got to do something about this. We've got to stop this. What's our plan? I feel attacked. What's my plan? I've got to stop it. But God's answer to the urgent times we live in is to respond in the opposite spirit, to pray, And to love. No matter what is happening in the world or what new fad comes along in Christianity, don't ever neglect your bread and butter, the foundation of imaging God. Are you praying? Are you loving? But, Travis, here's a new exciting way to experience God. Great. Are you praying? Are you loving? There's a new teacher with, with an amazing ability to communicate the Bible. Wonderful. Are you praying? Are you loving? There's a new worship band in the music. It just moves my heart so deeply. Great. Are you praying? Are you loving? I'm going to keep going with this, by the way. <laughs> Politics in America has reached an all-new level of dysfunction. Are you surprised? <laughs> Are you praying? Are you loving? I'm being treated horribly Because I follow Jesus. I'm so sorry, and God's heart grieves for you. But are you praying? Are you loving? My rights have been taken away, and I'm scared for the future. I'm so sorry. Are you praying? Are you loving? I've lost all I have, including my health, and it looks like the end might be near. Well done, good and faithful servant. Are you praying? Are you loving? This is hard. It's easy to understand, very hard to live, would you agree? We have to live this out in community. If you're not in a home group, if you're not in one of our peer ministries, Stop it. Get in one. We need each other. And in those communities, here's some questions I want you to ask. I'm going to go through them quickly. They'll leave them up on the screen so you can write them down. First question. How do we get to a place where we'd rather suffer than let sin win? That would be a great question to have in your small groups. How do we together get to a place where we'd rather suffer than let sin win? That's a long conversation in itself. Second question. What are some of the ways that you've died to sin? So, man, in this conversation with your, your groups, rejoice. There's some stuff, man, that I used to do I don't any longer do. It's not bragging. It's just saying God is powerful. He's good. That's one part of the question. second part, not as encouraging. What are some of the sins that still need a funeral? Good luck with that one. But we need to be honest. we got to talk it out with each other. Number three, it's one thing to say we need to respond to suffering with love and prayer. It's another thing to actually do it. How can we as a, as a group, as a home group, as a peer ministry, how can we encourage each other to actually live this way, praying and loving? And there's a fourth thing. Leave those up on the screen so people can write them down or take a picture if they want to. But the fourth thing I would encourage you is this, Hope found. You heard about it earlier. This is a place where if you are stuck in something and you need to get unstuck, there's a dysfunctional way you're living, a dysfunctional thinking. It could be anxiety. It could be uh, anger. It could be insecurity. It could be uh, you have a drinking problem or a drug problem. It could be uh, any place where we as human beings get stuck. Anyone in here get stuck? Come on. Come on. You guys don't raise your hand. Anyone in here get stuck? Yes. I actually want a response. Hope Hope found is an incredible place. I've been there. I've taught there a couple times. Awesome place. This is where we go to help in community, help ourselves get unstuck from the ways that we get so stuck in our Christian lives. I I encourage you hugely to go there. It starts on Thursday, September 19th, 6.30, upstairs in the pavilion across the street. With that, let me pray. Father, you know where we are. You know you know how our hearts are. You know how prone we are to go back to our old ways. And some of those old ways are still today ways, and we don't want to live there. But you are powerful. You, Jesus, died on a cross. We're dead in the tomb, and yet you are resurrected and alive today. If you have that kind of power, you can fix anything in me. We ask you to do that in us, that we would be the kind of community that though we're not better than anyone else, though we don't know much more about anything than anyone else, we do have your truth. We have Jesus, and we have a call to love. Would you help us to live that out? We pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said